almost all pandemics throughout history have been zoonotic or diseases that are passed from animals to humans. These include pandemics you've probably read about in your history textbooks, like the Black Plague, the 1918 flu epidemic, the 2014 West African Ebola epidemic, and most recently the COVID-19 pandemic, which we're currently living through. However, there are other diseases with pandemic potential that we're currently woefully unprepared for, antimicrobial resistant infections. This is Antimicrobials in Agriculture with your hosts, Emily, Laura, and Caroline. And we're Plan 2 students at the University of Texas at Austin, and today we're going to be talking about the emergence of zoonotic and antimicrobial resistant infections and how they are related to one another and what this means for the future of global health. Some of the questions that we'll be addressing throughout this podcast are how zoonoses and antimicrobial resistance emerge, what drives this emergence and spread, and what policies we can implement to prevent the next pandemic. Okay, so first things first, let's get a baseline of what exactly antimicrobial resistance is. Swara? Okay, so most people are probably more familiar with the word antibacterial. And really the main distinction between the word antimicrobial and antibacterial is how broad we're going. So when we talk about something being antibacterial, we're saying that it has properties that specifically try to kill or at least stop the growth of bacteria. Um, Well, bacteria are just one kind of microbe. So when we say that something is antimicrobial, it just means that it has properties to kill or stop the growth of microbes in general, including bacteria, fungi, and mold. And then this resistance part of antimicrobial resistance is what happens when the microbes themselves stop being hurt by the antimicrobials meant to hurt them. So this resistance basically comes from just like a gene mutation in a microbe, which can happen randomly during reproduction. So if a single bacterial cell on your hand is resistant, it has this resistant gene to the usual antibacterial hand sanitizer you use, then that bacterial cell will survive and continue to grow when you use that hand sanitizer, even though all its other counterparts who are non-resistant on your hands have been killed. So that means that that cell with the resistance can reproduce, multiplying and creating more bacteria that also carry that resistance against your hand sanitizer. And because bacteria multiply way, way faster than humans, the spread of these antimicrobial resistant bacteria can happen really quickly. So if you touch doorknobs, elevator buttons, or other public surfaces, the resistant bacteria on your hands can get transferred to the surface and then onto another person's hand when they touch it. And if that bacteria is harmful and then gets inside the body from touching your hands to your eyes or nose or your mouth, then basically you'd get sick. And since this is a resistant bacteria strain, um, it may not get killed or controlled by the usual antibiotics that doctors would prescribe. And now is like when you'd really have a problem. Um, So imagine everyone you know and their hands and their personal hand sanitizers, which are all a little bit different. And each of them may have antibiotic resistant bacteria on their hands. And the more hand sanitizer that's used, the more of those weaker, non-resistant bacteria will die. 
and the more resistant ones will continue to stick around. So overall, basically what happens is if someone gets a bacterial infection, the likelihood that the bacteria making them sick is a resistant strain is now higher since there are more of these resistant ones alive and the non-resistant ones have died. And this process of more bacteria becoming resistant because of the overuse of antibacterials or antimicrobials is what's called a selective pressure. And it has big consequences, which we'll get into. Okay, so that was a quick scientific look on what antimicrobial resistance kind of is and how it can spread. Um, and I think for most people, personal experiences with infections are really our biggest experience with antimicrobials in general. So at least for me, what I tend to think about when I hear the word antimicrobial or antibiotic are like the things that I get when I get an ear infection as a kid. And I mean, my ear would hurt and my mom would take me to the doctor and the doctor would like peek in my ear and then we'd leave with a prescription for amoxicillin or some other kind of antibiotic. And I think that's where most of our thought processes about infections and antimicrobials tend to stop. Right. But there's also a whole other world to antibiotics that most of us probably never really think about, and that's livestock. Um, just like we're affected by microbial infections, so are animals and even plants. And um, just like we go to the doctor and get a treatment for our ear infections, animals can be treated with antimicrobials to make the infections go away or are even used as a preventative measure to prevent animals from getting sick. So let's talk to Caroline and find out what exactly bacterial infections in animals are. So I'm going to start our discussion off with how zoonotic infectious diseases emerge, which has become a very relevant issue this past year since the COVID-19 pandemic was started by a zoonotic disease. So zoonoses are infectious diseases that spread from animals to humans via spillover events. And spillover events occur when pathogens become capable of infecting a new host. So for example, let's say there's a bacteria that infects your dog and now it becomes able to infect humans as well. So talking about zoonoses is becoming increasingly important because according to the CDC, 60% of known infectious diseases are zoonotic and 75% of emerging diseases are zoonotic. So policies need to be implemented to mitigate zoonoses emergence and spread. And I think COVID is a really great example of how one disease can cause a lot of destruction. So how exactly do these spillovers happen, Caroline? So first off, the probability that a spillover will occur is affected by several factors. Humans must have contact with a pathogen, such as raising farm animals, or maybe if an animal bites, me, bites you, or during the butchering process of meat. These are examples of roots of exposure. And increasing the frequency of contact with the pathogen, like milking a cow every single day, increases the dose of exposure. So additionally, current research indicates that zoonoses can emerge or spill over to humans from places that have ecosystem disruptions. And this can include things like deforestation, so like uh, clearing land for things like mining operations or new housing development or monoculture agriculture. 
Uh, and this is because the quantity and quality of interactions changes between species that were living in that area that is undergoing the changes. So the animals may come in contact more, so there's more potential roots of exposure. And because there is less habitat, they might come in contact more frequently, so there are more doses. So let's say we deforest a huge area of forest and it kills a lot of predators of a particular deer and they're struggling to survive in this environment. Now the deer population can get really big and disease can spread really quickly between them because they're in close contact with each other. And now let's say because we've deforested this area, there's more humans in this area and they also have more contact with the deer because they're hunting them more. So this could potentially help to facilitate deer disease spilling over to humans. So are there any examples of this happening like in the real world, Caroline? Yeah, so Ebola is a great example of this. Uh, in the outbreak zone of the 2014 West African Ebola epidemic, there was a lot of potential for doses and routes of exposure. Um, a 2015 study from Alexander and colleagues said that 83 to 86% of the land in the outbreak zone area had been deforested, which is a huge amount of forest god gone. And this land happened to be a biodiversity hotspot, which basically means that the land was inhabited by a lot of different species. So there was a lot of opportunity for the interactions between the different species and humans to change. So according to the latest research, the epidemic is thought to have started when a two-year-old child became exposed to the pathogen, either by eating bushmeat or eating fruit that was contaminated with bat saliva or feces, or by coming in contact with bat feces in the area where he lived. So there were several potential routes of exposure. Additionally, the human encroachment on the natural habitat increased the doses of exposure. So now, as demonstrated with Ebola, uh, deforestation is a major driver of habitat destruction, and this can lead to significant human health detriments, which leads me to my next topic, how animal agriculture can amplify zoonoses emergence and spread. So... According to the Union for Concerned Scientists, there are four primary drivers of tropical deforestation, beef cattle, soybeans, palm oil, and wood products. Of these, beef is by far the most destructive. The demand for beef is growing across the globe, most notably in countries that are experiencing high rates of economic development. Beef is a sought-after food product for many reasons, but one interesting reason is that it is associated with having the financial means necessary to access it. Um, the Yale School of the Environment says that beef production accounts for over half of the deforestation in South America and is responsible for 80% of deforestation in the Amazon. Additionally, 80% of soybean production, which is the second largest driver of deforestation here, is used for farm animal feed. So as a whole, livestock production is a major driver of global habitat loss and animal agriculture increases the risks of spillovers because it disrupts ecosystems and threatens biodiversity.
Scientists are especially worried about this because livestock and livestock food production are increasing in developing countries, especially, which happens to be where a majority of the world's biodiversity hotspots are located. What about how we farm animals? How does that play into this? Yes. Um, so the land use changes we make to farm in animals increases the risks of spillovers. And the way we raise animals increases the probability of spillovers as well. So to keep up with increasing demand for animal products, there has been a global shift towards intensive animal agriculture operations, especially in developing countries. This creates high-density monoculture environments, which basically means that there is a lot of one animal in close proximity to one another. Having animals so close to one another facilitates disease spread, and the environment that the animals are raised in often have other things in there, such as fecal matter, so the disease can spread even faster. In these environments, there are several opportunities for routes of exposure between animals and zoonotic pathogens. First, farmers and the workers who come in close contact with the animals are vulnerable to zoonosis spillovers. Working with animals on a regular basis provides a significant dose of contact to potential pathogens and unsanitary working conditions in a high concentration environment increases the risk that a substantial amount of pathogen can shed from farm animals and eventually infect humans. Next, pathogens can survive and be transmitted to humans during the meat butchering and preparation processes. So blood and saliva and other tissues can help to sustain the viability of the pathogen. And exposure to these biological tissues over time increases the probability that a pathogen will transmit to humans. So one environment that humans are susceptible to zoonotic pathogens that has been in the news recently is wet markets. Wet markets are establishments where people buy and sell live animals and freshly butchered meats. So wild animals, domesticated animals, and different bodily fluids like blood and feces can mix and interact with each other. And this can possibly increase the probability that a disease will emerge and spread. And it is thought right now, the latest research is indicating that a wet market helped to facilitate the spread of the um, COVID-19 pandemic. Um, however, I think it is really important to note that the next zoonoses emergence could be from anywhere. There are high-density animal agriculture operations all across the globe, and the next spillover could happen right in our backyard. So now I'm going to pass it off to Emily, who is going to talk about how livestock production facilitates antimicrobial resistance, emergence, and spread. And the number one thing I'd like for listeners to note is how the same things and similar things that facilitate zoonosis emergence and spread also facilitate antimicrobial resistance and spread. Right. Like Caroline was saying, unsanitary living conditions greatly contribute to the emergence and spread of antimicrobial resistant infections. Um, just to give a little bit of the history of how the agriculture industry ended up where it is today, there was a great shift in the United States in the 1930s and livestock production became industrialized. So now large corporations were in charge of animal husbandry, the processing of animals into the food market, and sales of animal products to the consumer market. 
This new industrial food animal production introduced pathogen risks in two different ways. First is the dense confinement of livestock, which creates the perfect environment for bacteria to thrive. And, and secondly, new formulations of livestock feed that have antibiotic additives, which select for resistant bacteria. So the result of this is a reservoir of resistant bacteria pathogens. And just to give a little more insight into the livestock living conditions, um, this dense confinement has a name. It's called concentrated animal feeding operations. And these animals live in extremely close contact with each other, just completely packed in and are unavoidably exposed to their own waste. So to compensate for the increased risk of infection as a result of these unsanitary living conditions, livestock are given a feed with low doses of antibiotics. This addition of antibiotics to animal feed began more than 50 years ago in the United States when antibiotics became mass produced and veterinarians found that antibiotics when given to animals act both as a growth promoter and allow animals to live in these concentrated animal feeding operations with lower infection rates. This is relevant to us because a lot of times clinically important antibiotics are being used in animal feeds, for example, penicillins. And this selects for bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics used in clinical settings to treat bacterial infections in humans. So basically, the useful life of antimicrobials is shortened and they're not as effective in combating human or animal disease. And there are major consequences besides shortening the useful life of antimicrobials because studies have found that even just completely removing antibiotics from feed does not reverse the effects of establishing these resistant bacteria. The amount of resistant bacteria in the animal waste decreased dramatically, but there were still traces present. However, there is some hope because new research from the Purdue company found that creating more sanitary living conditions in which animals are less densely packed can increase growth promotion and infection prevention more than using antibiotics as an additive. And right now, the use of antimicrobials as an additive to animal feed is pretty much largely unregulated. Um, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has acknowledged that this is an issue and suggests guidelines for limiting the use of antimicrobials in animal feed, but doesn't enforce the regulations. Part of the problem is that we lack definitive information on the amount of antimicrobials that are used as a feed additive in the U.S. because feed formulations are considered confidential business under U.S. laws. But to just give kind of a scope of the issue of antibiotic use in agriculture, it's estimated that between 60 to 80% of antimicrobials sold in the United States are used in agriculture. However, the fact that we just have estimations and the general lack of information makes it really difficult to quantify the extent of resistance that emerges as a result of the use of antimicrobials in livestock. So to kind of gauge this issue, we have to look at other countries, um, especially European countries where more research has been conducted. And Spain, after the introduction of fluoroquinolones into the poultry production in 1993, the rates of resistance found in human isolates rose to over 80 percent 
and similar trends were found in studies of poultry in Norway and the Netherlands. But in contrast, studies have found that in countries like Australia, there's low fluoroquinolone resistance. And the difference between Australia and these European countries is that um, fluoroquinolones are not used in agriculture in Australia. And this is important to the U.S. because resistant pathogens have been found in animal-derived products in the United States. Uh, studies by the FDA have found a high prevalence of pathogens resistant to tetracycline, penicillin, and erythromycin, which are all clinically important antibiotics. Animals that are given feed with antibiotics are significantly more likely to have these multi-drug resistant pathogens than organically raised livestock. So it's also important to take a look at how the animal products that we eat arrive at grocery stores. The slaughtering and packaging process of the livestock industry can act as a pathway to introduce new pathogens. Cooking can kill some of these bacteria, but you still run the risk of eating ill-prepared meat and exposing yourself to drug-resistant pathogens. And this process of the livestock industry also increases the chances of exposure via non-food pathways. Farmers and farm workers can be exposed to antimicrobial-resistant bacteria by direct contact with these livestock, especially during the slaughtering and packaging processes where these groups of people are exposed to blood, saliva, and other fluids from animals. This poses the biggest threat to public health because it translates to community risks or person-to-person -person contact. The farmer or farm worker who was exposed to antimicrobial-resistant bacteria goes home and exposes their family and their friends. And now these antimicrobial-resistant bacteria are no longer just contained in the concentrated animal feeding operations, but can move throughout communities. There's also the risk of exposure through environmental pathways as a result of runoff from farms with livestock that are fed antibiotics. So the most obvious way is through animal waste. Uh, with direct contact with animal waste can expose people to antimicrobial resistant bacteria. And one study even found that resistant pathogen lasts for up to four months in animal waste. Another pathway of exposure is through water. Resistant E. coli and resistance and resistance genes have been found in groundwater sources for drinking water sampled near hog farms in North Carolina, Maryland, and Iowa, which is really significant because groundwater provides drinking water for more than 97% of the rural United States. Soil, it's a little bit difficult to establish a connection to antibiotic use in agriculture because antibiotics occur naturally in soil and resistance is commonly found in these dynamic microbial populations. But one study of topsoil at a dairy farm found multi-drug resistant bacteria that had resistant plasmids. And food crops can also be exposed to resistant bacteria because surface waters are contaminated from land disposal of animal waste. And studies have found that waste from concentrated animal feeding operations have been linked to resistant pathogens recovered from food crops grown in soils that were irrig irrigated with this contaminated water. So I think what you said about runoff is really interesting issue because of how it can impact our environment. Um, I know that there are some studies that show how birds can spread antimicrobial resistant bacteria as they migrate. Um, so I guess this is important to note because it shows how globalized the world is. Uh, is that an accurate statement you think? 
That's a really good point, Caroline. There are so many different pathways for these resistant bacteria to spread throughout different communities. And we live in such a globally interconnected world. And the scary thing is that we use the same antibiotics to treat infections everywhere. So the effects of this can be really devastating. I think it's super interesting that you brought up this research about um, how basically reducing the um, amount of animals in a space when you're raising livestock can reduce the need for antibiotics because that research is by Purdue, the ginormous chicken company, right? And something I really wanted to talk about was how Purdue is basically like the leader in the poultry industry for reducing its antibiotic use and really starting this push towards having a no antibiotic ever label and really marketing that to customers. And there's a super, super great New York Times article about how this sort of self-imposed pressure and policy by Purdue has changed the way its competitors in the poultry industry um, want to raise the standards and also be able to meet that never ever antibiotics. Um, and I think this brings up a really, really good point, which is basically what does that label mean? Because it's not always so clear and it's, it's different, right? So over half of Purdue's chickens as of 2015 can be labeled as never having antibiotics ever, which means nothing at all. Um, but a lot of Purdue's competitors like Tyson Chicken, for example, um, has tried to move in a similar direction because now there is a sort of customer demand for it. Um, but as you might guess, it's, it's actually pretty hard to do that, right? Um, because as we kind of just talked about, the way that most meat is produced in this country is really um, unsanitary. Um, and it's, it's a perfect breeding ground for widespread microbial outbreaks. Um, so Purdue, in order to reach this benchmark, has made pretty drastic changes in the way that it raises chickens over the past decade. And all of these aim to prevent outbreaks from happening in the first place. Um, but there definitely is criticism that their hard line on never using antibiotics ever um, is not so good because inevitably outbreaks still do occur sometimes. So in 2014, this whistleblower chicken raiser um, who contracts for Purdue basically speaks out on this issue with the company's zero antibiotics policy. So he describes chicks as not having adequate living room and sanitation. And as a result, there are these bacterial infections. And so when they arrive at his farm, he has these sick chickens. Um, but because Purdue has really strict rules about medicating chickens, they wouldn't allow him to treat the birds, um, which he said is just inhumane for the birds who could, you know, feel better and, and live and be cured if they were treated with something. So, you know, it's kind of interesting because we're talking about how there are all these sort of like downsides in this overuse of antimicrobials and animal farming, which there are, and, and that's causing health risks to humans. But at the same time, there are clearly some downsides to taking such a hard line on the other end too, um, which include, you know, downsides of animal welfare and effects on the individual growers working in the industry, like the Purdue whistleblower.
you've said that Purdue's hard line is basically shifting consumer attitudes toward wanting this clean, no medication label, and that's putting pressure on competitors. So then what are the competitors doing and how does that fare compared to Purdue? So I mentioned Tyson Chicken earlier, right? So competitors are moving towards less antibiotics, and in some cases, the no antibiotics label. So Tyson does sell no antibiotics ever chickens, but they do it under um, the Nature Raised brand name, um, which doesn't really account for much of Tyson's sales, unlike Purdue's antibiotics free chickens. Um, so instead, what a lot of competitors are doing, they're moving away from antimicrobials that negatively affect human health. So getting back to science for a second, they're using these things called ionophores. And what ionophores are, are basically antibiotics not used in human medicine. And these are considered to be much better practice than using standard antibiotics like penicillin, for example. Um, because remember, the more antimicrobial that's used, the more resistant microbes are going to thrive and possibly cause infections um, in humans and in animals. So by using these ionophores, which are separate from sort of human medicine, um, humans don't have to worry about increasing rates of resistance among these microbes due to the use in agriculture. Um, and, you know, Tyson and the competitors defend their use of ionophores, and they say that it protects their animals when outbreaks do occur. So the situation, um, like the Purdue whistleblower exposed, um, Tyson will be able to treat those infected animals with some sort of antimicrobial because they don't have such a hard line on most of their, um, you know, meat products. Um, but still, you know, the issue of overuse does exist. While ionophores may not increase resistance and impact human health directly, I mean, this overuse can still have health and environmental impacts on the animals and the farming environment, right? I mean, the ecosystem surrounding the farms, the animals themselves, resistance can still form. Right. And resistance to the iphonophores will still spread and eventually um, farmers will need to turn to another type of antimicrobial to treat their animals, which could be a clinically important one for humans. And this is also really inter interesting because while the changes are happening in the poultry industry, things aren't perfect. And the overuse of human-related antimicrobials is still an issue in other kinds of meat production like beef and pork and fish. So what is the government's take on all this exactly? Yeah, so like you said, I've kind of been talking about chicken and poultry, but that's only one part of it, right? I mean, we talked about how beef is particularly destructive. And so it does make sense that sort of the government should be doing something about this, right? Um, and the policy is complex and it's different in different parts of the world. And, you know, Emily, you touched on this, like Europe generally has stricter standards when it comes to the use of antimicrobials in livestock and the conditions under which the animals are to be raised. Um, and which, you know, as we know, can reduce the prevalence of outbreaks happening in the first place, which would reduce the need for antimicrobials. But as far as America goes, um, there has been forward progress in the last couple of years. Um, and all of this sort of stems from one piece of legislation called the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act of the 1930s, which is, is old. Um, so in 1996, 
the Animal Drug Availability Act was passed, and it updated this outdated 1930s approach to drugs. And I know 1996 may not sound particularly recent, but it, it really is the most recent legislation that I could find that specifically addresses the concern of antimicrobial resistance and the raising of livestock. So one of the biggest things that it did was it created a new class of drugs, VFDs, um, which are veterinary feed directives. And that basically means that antimicrobials could only be administered under the direction of a licensed veterinarian. And that growth promotion would no longer be a good enough reason for feeding animals antimicrobials. And these are two really big steps, right? Um, and basically to enforce this, the FDA has put out two sets of guidelines, the latest of which was just released in 2017. So while we're talking about a 1996 law, I mean, the changes are happening very, very recently. And I say enforcement, but, but really the term is quote unquote phased enforcement, which is a little unclear about what the, the consequences are for companies or farmers who don't follow these guidelines. Um, and it's, it's also a question of how much the vet oversight, the veterinarian oversight is making a difference. So as of this rule in 2017, although you know growth promotion is no longer an acceptable reason to feed your livestock antimicrobials, um, and since there has to be since they have to be accessed pretty much exclusively through a prescription from a veterinarian, then the rates of antimicrobial use should be way, way down um, since growth is no longer allowed. But that's not really the case. Um, infection control and similar reasons for using antimicrobials has gone up a lot. So overall usage has reduced, but not as much as it should have technically if the law was really working as it should. Okay, so this one law seems like a step in the right direction for sure, but the question of how effective it's been at reducing antimicrobial use is still up for debate. So are there any policies aimed at addressing this issue? Okay, so like I said, that 1996 law is really like the only specific one, but there's this other law, which I think could, could be used either as a model or just in and of itself used for addressing antimicrobial resistance. So the 2011 Food Safety and Modernization Act. Um, so this basically talks about food safety concerns, which we think of like cholera outbreaks and lettuce and like salmonella outbreaks and, and things like that, right? And there are these huge recalls and suddenly like you can't get lettuce for weeks at HUB. So that's kind of what we're talking about when we talk about this Food Safety and Modernization Act. But I think it could be a model for what a really effective antimicrobial resistance um, act could kind of look like because there are these strict inspections and guidelines for concerns. And I mean, look, food safety concerns. I am not a law expert, but I feel like antimicrobial resistance is a safety concern that stems from food production. So I see the connection, um, at least there. And I think 
this, that could be a really, really interesting way to sort of have the government take a more active role in preventing this. Um, and, you know, Emily kind of talked about this too, like if the government was going to go somewhere, where should they go? Well, there kind of needs to be more funding and more transparency, right? I mean, even among experts, there is a struggle to understand the exact scope of health implications for humans that the antimicrobial use in animals has. And so, you know, we've talked about how the spread happens, but we don't really know the exact numbers of the scale of this spread because there is an overall lack of transparency in how much antimicrobials are used in the meat industry, despite current FDA guidelines. Um, and like I said before, it's also unclear about how much the veterinary oversight has really changed things. So overall, I'd say that if you know we want the government to kind of fix this problem, the experts and the scientists making the policy really need a way of getting more data to make smarter, smarter solutions. So in this podcast, we've talked about zoonotic infections and how animal agriculture practices increase the risks of spillover events and antimicrobial resistance spread. And we've also talked about what the meat industry is changing and the government's role in reducing antimicrobial resistance is. So covering these issues is important because we know that the next pandemic is likely to be zoonotic. Almost all past pandemics and epidemics have been, and there is substantial evidence indicating that the next one will be too. Second, we know that hospitals are seeing increased rates of antimicrobial resistant infections because they are overwhelmed with COVID-19 patients. So what if COVID-19 catalyzed the next pandemic and it was antimicrobial resistant? How would we handle this? We've never had a antimicrobial resistant pandemic before. Lastly, what if the next pandemic were both zoonotic and antimicrobial resistant? What if a zoonosis became resistant to treatment? It would be an outbreak we've never seen before. These are topics that really need to be discussed because we need to create and implement policy solutions to know exactly how to handle them. So what can listeners do about this? You can vote. You can vote for initiatives that preserve green spaces, support public health advocates, and I think especially in the U.S., it's important to talk with friends and family about these public health issues to help spread science-based information. And as we've seen, customers can demand more from industry, and industry can also better itself. That should be informed by science so we can take a more nuanced approach to producing meat, as opposed to, for example, produce hardline style of marketing their antibiotic use. So thank you to everybody for listening to our podcast. Uh, we would like to thank the Plan 2 Honors Program. This is the program that we're all a part of, as well as the National Science Foundation for providing our teacher, Dr. Keir Sitz, the funding for this course. Uh, her project number is 1916709. We'd also like to thank Mark Earhart and Patrick Wiseman for their help with the podcasts and the CSE's communications team for editing the podcast. If you would like more information on this, on this topic, uh, check out https colon forward slash forward slash www.com. E-N-G-R dot 
utexas.edu slash tc358podcasts. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.